the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. For the past century, visionaries have recognised that a sustained human presence will require us to grow plants in space. Not just for biological study purposes, but to eat. We addressed this issue in episode 48. Could lettuce be the way to go? This has been tested on the International Space Station, the ISS. My name is Oscar Monhe. I'm a member of the space crop production team at the Kennedy Space Center. And I'm going to talk to you about the lunar lettuce of, of essentially proposed plant growth facility for technology testing on the moon. So this first bullet is really summarizes about 50 years of plant growth in space. You know, plant growth systems developed on Earth have been adapted for growing crops in microgravity on ISS. So during the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, hundreds of plant experiments were conducted on the Salyuts, Skylab, the Mir, Shuttle, and ISS by multinational teams of scientists using dozens of plant growth facilities, really. You know, and during this time, we found that plants can grow normally in, in microgravity if we mitigate the indirect effects of the spaceflight environment. And that is, um, you know, if we use forced convection to mix the air and provide enough CO2, and we control moisture redistribution to ensure root, root zone aeration. During the last 10 years, NASA has developed the veggie and the advanced plant habitat. Here you see uh, Scott Kelly eating lettuce from, produced on the veggie and the advanced plant habitat. These are 0.2 square meter facilities for conducting space biology experiments and also for looking at crop production. The veggie is an open cabin, passive watering, and has a passive watering system. The APH is, uh, has full environmental control. And these systems were developed to grow plants so that we can learn how they grow in space. And so we can also conduct a lot of space biology. The veggie is very simple. The APH is very complex. 
And then a new system is called Apollo 3 has been developed that's going to be larger and, and it's probably going to fall in, in between the veggie and the APH and, and simplicity. People have looked at lunar dust and it helps plant growth. But recently there's been a, you know, a lunar lander mission from the Chang E4 and they germinated a cotton seed and, and other seeds for, for a few days on the moon. So this is a germination demonstration on the moon, but it, this does not demonstrate plant growth and development under a combined influence of deep space radiation and partial gravity. So that, that remains to be demonstrated. The next bullet says that, you know, we have critical gaps in, in what uh, ionizing radiation can do on plants. And in part is because we can't recreate what's going on out, out in the moon here on Earth. Some ionizing effects that include germination and seed viability, uh, you know, reduced, reducing germination and seed viability and, and maybe related to some DNA damage. But, you know, what, what is really happening? That's what we want to find out. And also partial gravity affects moisture distribution phenomena. And then the last bullet um, here uh, is really important because if we are going to have future exploration mission and surface habitats all the way as far as the moon, uh, Mars or the moon, you know, we want uh, sustainable crop production systems that ensure food safety, that the food is safe to eat. But essentially, this states that uh, the lunar surface is a destination and an analog for Mars. And so we can perform fundamental research in, in this unique radiation and partial gravity environment. You know, it's not just the radiation and just the partial gravity, it's radiation by partial gravity interactions that we're going to be studying. And so we can look at, you know, the effects of, on the plant growth and performance. And what I want to also mention is that, you know, we want to look at watering systems and, and how they behave in partial gravity. For example, evaluate hydroponics versus regular based systems versus soilless approaches. And we want to demonstrate these systems in, in the relevant environment, which would be on the surface on the moon. If we look at the moon as an analog for Mars, then what we want to do is we want to grow plants in a partial gravity environment. Now, life support systems, you know, for, for humans, they remove the CO2, they supply the crew with oxygen and water and, and a nutritious diet. And the food system, which would be some derivative of the ISS store food system is going to be adequate for the short duration 30-day moon mission. So we're not going to be growing the plants so that the astronauts eat this on the moon. However, for Mars, there is a, a risk of crew performance being affected if they receive inadequate diets during these long-duration missions that are longer than three years because nutrition of the store food system can degrade and, and this time frames. Um, essential vitamins and antioxidants may not be present in the food any longer. So solution to this problem is to grow fresh pick and eat crops to supplement the nutrition needs of the crew. Now, as far as science and lunar space biology, we need a facility to characterize plant growth and partial gravity and deep space radiation and having a, a, a plant growth system would do that. However, as far as crop production systems, we want, we want to evaluate candidate watering systems and partial gravity and also demonstrate the imaging systems that could ensure the food safety that, that I mentioned. So if we look at, at a lunar mission, again, we want to grow plants in partial gravity. Some of the things we have to address is that water behavior affects plant growth indirectly. 
However, you know, on Earth and 1G, we have a well-drained soil and it supplies the root zone with sufficient moisture and oxygen for active nutrient uptake. So we've been lucky in that sense. On ISS and 0G, moisture redistribution uh, can, can affect this aeration to roots, causing, causing poor root growth. And so on the moon and Mars, you know, what, what is happening, and, and really we lack sufficient data to predict the fluid distribution phenomena and aeration that could occur in these partially wet substrate. So the task for a lunar mission is, is really, we want to export our agricultural methods developed in 1G to a partial gravity habitat. In part, this means developing and demonstrating sustainable watering systems to optimize plant growth in, in a partial gravity. And if we fix this, then we can go to Mars. So for example, there we can have porous tubes to, to provide the nutrients. We can use substrates or modified substrates with different soil amendments. We can have hydroponic systems to grow crops. These different watering systems uh, need to be sustainable. If we look at the current system that for it's a substrate-based system in the APH. It's not sustainable. It's a single-use substrate-based system that produces 0.1 kilograms of food of plant growth per kilogram of media. So that is not sustainable. We cannot be bringing media to grow this. So we need to look at new watering systems. So what subsystems do we need for a crop production system on the moon? Let's say we want to grow a leafy crop with minimal or almost no crew intervention. So we would initially unstow it and place our root module or after harvest, dispose the root module. And then we wanna grow the crop for an entire life cycle, maybe a 30 day lunar mission. And if there's a shorter time available, then you know it wouldn't be a full life cycle, but it, it would be you know 15 days, 10 days. So the subsystems that we would need, we would require autonomous plant growth system you know, we would have a lighting, a watering, and an imaging system. And then we can scale these subsystems. They would be modular. They could be, you know, for example, the watering could be hydroponic. It could be substrate-based. It could be soilless, you know. Uh, and we would scale them for deployment in either a crude habitat or a cargo ship, you know, depending on what space in, is available. What data are we going to need and, and to achieve our science goals? So our science goal may be to demonstrate an autonomous crop production system by growing a, a green crop like a lettuce on the moon for 30 days. So we want to collect uh, data non-destructively and autonomously. And this data would be environmental data like telemetry or periodic multispectral hyperspectral images. So a time course data that we can uh, use to compare what we see to ground controls. So for example, we would have leaf area measurements of growth and spectral indices from the, t from the imaging uh, to detect stresses or stress responses and gauge uh, food safety. Oscar Monge is a member of the space crop production team at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. <laughs> Also based at the Kennedy Space Center is Bruce Link. He is keen to meet the challenge of producing crops in deep space. 
So I just want to start off with what the challenge is that lies in front of us, which is really about how do we go about building a lunar habitat where crops, biomes, and astronauts can all flourish. And as plants are really important to this process because they can not only supply food, but they help to reprocess both the air and the water in these type of systems. What's the difference at the moon? And we all know that's that the moon is orbiting outside of the Earth's magnetic field. So it's exposed to a lot more radiation than we're seeing very close to the Earth where the ISS orbits. So when I think about these long duration missions, I like to think about what the critical risks are for those missions. And what those risks can be are the first is well known, which is the space environment alters the biology and the response of the organisms. In addition to that, at the moon with the higher uh, radiation environments, we know that those cause DNA damage to all organisms. There's a threat to long-term stability. And this also increases the need for antioxidants and vitamins that help to uh, the cells to combat that ionizing radiation. Furthermore, as a sort of additional problem, the key nutrients that are, are used in those processes can't be reliably or economically supplied from the earth. And those are things like vitamins A, B1, B6, C, D, K, lutein, and the other antioxidants. So how do we go about dealing with those risks? Well, we do that by trying to understand the integrated long-term effects of deep space environments on the biological systems. Uh, then also just want to say by looking at packages flown at different environments, then you can begin to separate out the effects of these, these different variables, such as the microgravity and the radiation. So some of the critical questions then are about, or what are the biological effects of living in small enclosed systems? And remember, these are very small uh, space vehicles. They're very tightly closed with very closed, limited ecologies that are operating within them. And then we need to understand what the biological effects are of the micro or partial gravity, which, and in particular, whether lunar gravity is sufficient for most or any organisms or any processes uh, that we're exposed to on the moon. What's the impact of deep space radiation on the organisms as well in that environment? And then also, uh, since there's no magnetic field up there, we can address the question of whether or not that's a requirement for long-term health of people or other organisms. And of course, there can be interaction effects of all of these, these factors that could be either beneficial or detrimental. We all know that for the very first missions that we're going to fly, we've sort of been handed the requirements of, well, it can't use any power and it can't weigh anything. And that seems like an impossible ask, but in fact, these types of experiments have been flown before. And, and in fact, mentioned earlier today, the Biostack experiment there flew on Apollo 16 and 17. Basically, layers of uh, seeds or yeast spores or uh, bacteria spores could be put in that biostack and they could observe the radiation moving through that stack and have an idea of how much radiation were, were hitting those different organisms. And then they would grow them back when they back up when they got back to Earth and they could have an idea of how badly uh, damaged by the radiation they were. We have done some types of experiments in space, and the, the uh, Oreos nanosatellite was done by the Ames Research Center, and that was in an orbit that took it through the Van Allen radiation belt, so they were exposed to higher levels of radiation. And they did look at uh, degradation of some organic molecules, as well as they were able to grow up, I believe it was yeast and uh, bacteria thurogenesis. And so when you think about a, a cube satellite or a cube payload, then some of the things you can uh, that have been done in those are on ISS, Space Tango, and NanoRack have both supplied uh, cube 
architectures for growing plants in, in space on the ISS. But in any case, uh, if you have that cube, CubeSat type of format, then that could be integrated onto Eclipse Lander. And if the lander could supply some of your uh, power and telemetry needs, then you can reduce the overall ma mass of that payload, and it might be quite appropriate for that, that type of uh, setting. Another thing that we would be very excited to do on some of these early missions would be to grow some microgreens up there. These potentially could be grown in the habitable volume of the HLS at Kennedy Space Center. They are working on some very low mass ways to do that. Uh, possibly you might get away with using no power if you had a, had a sufficient light source uh, to do that. And then if samples of, of that growth could be returned to Earth, then you can get information about gene expression, about the microbes, microbiomes, uh, and that'll give you further information about the food safety uh, of that crop. And then if the samples are large enough, even some nutritional information uh, about that experiment. And of course, we'd be very interested in doing that kind of experiment because these microgreens have been shown uh, to be provide good supplemental nutrition uh, for an astronaut. Again, how we're going to address the challenge, first of all, is just to try and understand the lunar environmental impact on really the fundamentals of plant biology and on microbes themselves, and then ultimately, hopefully, the plant-microbe interactions. We need to get some good estimates of the DNA damage rates. That'll give us an idea of how long uh, systems can be sustainable up there. And then also look at things like nutrient production in something like microgreens or any of these other plant experiments you've heard about. And then also about the degradation rates of those nutrients in those environments. And of course, we shouldn't forget why we're doing all of this work. And really, at the end of the day, it's really about having happy crews up there and part of that is having good good food to eat and some nutrient and food security while you're up there. Bruce Link at the Kennedy Space Center. Ralph Frischke is one of Bruce's colleagues. He wants to use unmanned CLIPS, the commercial lunar payload service, and the piloted HLS, the human landing system, that will land on the moon to test his vision for space crop production. I'm Ralph Ritchie. I'm the NASA Senior Project Manager for Space Crop Production at the Kennedy Space Center. And for those of you who might be unaware, KSE is the agency's lead center for plant and crop research. So we take this very important and seriously in the work we do. So basically, when it comes to the work that we're doing, food and crew health are the drivers for that. And so our space crop production vision is basically to ensure food system security on long duration missions beyond LEO. Food and nutrition are the first line of defense when it comes to crew health and performance. Key nutrients degrade in quality in the prepackaged food system over time. We talked a little bit about the importance of adding variety to the crew diet to prevent menu fatigue, also about enhancing morale. But key to keep in mind is that not only must the food be safe, but it must be palatable. It must be something that the crew wants to eat or as proven and demonstrated time and again on the International Space Station, they will not eat it. The platforms and the destinations we're dealing with on the path to exploration. So we know all about the ground research that we do. A lot of the people who are online today, uh, principal investigators have flown experiments on the International Space Station. And so now as we look about moving beyond low Earth orbit, uh, the topics of the gateway, lunar surface, Mars transit, Mars surface come up. 
So when we look at all these research topics that are being brought up, I think it's really important to factor in the timeline and the priority with the destinations we're dealing with. Uh, first off, when it comes to crop production, we have been funded to uh, deploy the first operational crop production system on the International Space Station. That's going to be called OHALO, and the goal is to really measure the uh, consistent productivity and reliability of a crop production system. When I talk about Gateway, we don't see anything happening on Gateway anytime in their near future as the focus is going to be on the lunar surface. But that brings us to a fork in the road when it comes to plants and uh, as a source of crops for food, for consumption. What's going to come first? Is it going to be longer term lunar surface days or the transit mission to Mars? We already know that for the transit mission to Mars, a, a food supplementation system is going to be required. So that's that's the first defined need. For the lunar surface, shorter missions will not require uh, a food system. And therefore, I think we have to be very careful in our prioritization that when it comes to radiation versus partial gravity investigations, I think the radiation investigations are going to have to take the priority. And again, what's going to be very important is the systems that we deploy to conduct this basic and primary research. They're going to have to be things that we can put on clips landers, human landing systems, and we have to keep in mind the very limiting factors of mass, volume, consumables, and crew time. Uh, you know, we have to factor up the fact that if we look at deploying food on the surface of the moon, we can send up food on the moon that's going to last a good two to three years. Uh, so we're going to really have to compete in terms with those constraints with prepackaged food for the shorter mission timeline. So I think these are all topics we're going to need to talk about, but and they're all going to be important considerations when we start prioritizing the research goals that we have for the near future. And there we have it. Much thought is being put into producing crops on the moon and in space. Meanwhile, the early Artemis astronauts had better not forget to bring their own lunch, not to mention breakfast and dinner. The Artemis astronauts will need to be trained in the biological sciences. Cynthia Evans is with the Astro-Materials Research and Exploration Science Division at the Johnson Space Centre in Houston. In April 2021, she gave this overview of Artemis astronaut training. Okay, yeah, so I'm going to give you an update on where we are with astronaut training, and I'm speaking on behalf of a team. Um, I think we've heard in multiple form, forums, including the science definition team, which I forgot to lose, um, they all called out for requirements for a well-trained crew, and they reference the Apollo lessons. So including the geoscience and field training for the crew very early in the flow, integrated simulations in the relevant field environments, cross-training and field training for flight operators and engineers and managers. So uh, we wanted to let you know that there's a NASA team of planetary and field geologists who are already integrated with the Flight Operation Division Training Office and also with the Crew Office. Um, and this um, includes more than 10 years of close collaboration and coordination with uh, the crew office and the training offices. And we've been focusing over the past 10 years on training the astronaut candidates, the new classes when they come in, um, training the crew for ISS Earth observations. We do have well-established mechanisms for including external scientists. Um, and we have plans underway to integrate the fundamental geological sciences, lunar science, planetary processes, and field operations into the Artemis training flow for crew and, and the supporting operations staff. So I'm going to talk about all of that. 
Okay, so um, because we do partner so closely with our EVA training colleagues, they have a three-phase training model um, that that starts with the astronauts just as they're selected and come in as a class during their astronaut candidacy to give them the basic skills, provide proficiency training until they are assigned to a mission, and then they have mission-specific training. So we've used that model because it also helps, it makes a lot of sense, and it helps to integrate with their training flow. Our um, model for Artemis planetary science training um, has this three phases. We do have a pretty well-established training during astronaut candidacy. Uh, it's a two-year flow. It includes uh, classroom training modules that have geoscience fundamentals or systems information because we're targeting um, the International Space Station crew Earth observations, but also planetary science and mission content because we know the astronauts do go out on public appearances and they need to know something about the planetary missions that are already underway. We do field mapping, and we've been doing this pretty extensively for the past three classes that include a focus on geological mapping, interpreting those maps, making observations, and traverse planning. We also do introduce them to sampling and instrumentation. And finally, we fold in uh, expeditionary components, including team experiences and leadership opportunities. Our second phase, proficiency training, um, occurs after the crews have received their basic astronaut candidacy training. They've been in the field. They know how to map. They may engage in specific training for the International Space Station. There may be opportunities to participate in analog missions. Um, this is science under operational constraints. There will be advanced field opportunities, um, including astronaut field assistantships with colleagues who have uh, who have funded research activities in the field, and then operational tests and training facilities. And finally, there's the phase three assigned crew training that is going to be our future focus and really take a lot of our time and energy starting now, including advanced classroom instructions, facility-based mission simulations, and extensive field experiences, really based, again, on the Apollo model. Over the past 10 years, we want to talk a little bit about what we've been doing. We have built a robust geoscience and field training curriculum provided to the new astronaut classes. And I mentioned before, this has been done for three classes. And this does include increased field work for new classes, two weeks in the field with a focus on mapping. We have tightly integrated Earth and planetary science classroom and field training. So one segues to the other. And we have capstone exercises. And finally, as I mentioned, we do have the integrated um, mission relevance by partnering with the NASA operational psychologist, including the space flight resource management elements. Uh, we have established the process for the field assistantships for the trained crew to maintain the proficiency. We also have been, until Corona, um, offering on the cadence of about two times a year field mapping classes for the engineering community, including spacesuit engineers and the tool engineers and the flight operators and managers as an introduction to what it means to do operations on a planetary surface. And finally, again, we do we have been continuing several operational test series with integrated crews, scientists, engineer participations at the JSC facilities. So then looking ahead, we're going to continue to build the partnerships with the crew and the EVA training offices and the broader flight operations community. 
we're, uh, this is pretty important, we're developing funding requests for the basic science and science operational training for the FY22 through 27 timeframe through the NASA uh, budgeting process. And, and, and that's, that's, that is really important for us to be able to have the, the budget to be able to do this. We are assessing relevant astronaut experience within the whole of the crew office for developing the Artemis science content. And we wanna report out right now that the majority of the crew have been through the, ask, the astronaut candidate training uh, with one or more weeks of field experience. Um, many have participated in proficiency activities, either in analog exercises or the operational testing um, or field assistance. And several, many of the crew, the bulk of the crew has been to the station. So they have a basic understanding of what, how do you observe a planet? And they understand the earth geography and planetary processes and the importance of those observations. So we want to continue by fully integrating our phased approach to crew training based on the EBE model with the FOD Artemis training plans, including you know, multi-year training schedule with FOD that integrates the planetary and the field science with the EBA operations training, leading to integrated simulations, including the basic lunar and planetary science that can be provided to the pre-assigned crew, targeting a subset of basic training for the Artemis support team, including the flight directors and operation engineers, identifying relevant field training and locations required for logistics for basic training and simulations, and then continuing the operational testing. And that's all I have. Thank you very much.